You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money. So glad to have you with me today. On today's show, we've got career advice for everyone all show long. We'll start with executive coach Maggie Mistel, who I have worked with in the past and I know has fantastic advice. And then later on in the show, in addition to taking your questions, of course, we'll have Cheryl Cassoni. She's the author of The Comeback, How Today's Moms Re-Enter the Workforce. I was thinking as I prepped for this show that sometimes people ask me about how I carved my career path, and they always expect to hear that it was some sort of a straight line. And that in and of itself makes me laugh because my career was a lot of hops, a lot of detours, a lot of stops, a lot of starts, a lot of, well, I don't want to really do this, so I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to do something else. And as I've interviewed successful women in my life, I've found that's the norm. It's very, very rarely a straight line. And just hearing that every so often, I think, makes people feel a little better about the fact that they might not be on the path that they want to be on just at this particular moment. And in case you're one of them, or in case you're thinking, gosh, I need a change, or I don't need a change right now, but I am definitely going to need a change in two or three years, we've got help. Maggie Mistel is here in the studio with me. Hi, Maggie. Hi, Jean. It's great to be back. Oh, thank you so much for coming oh, in. I shouldn't say great to be back. It's great to see you again. Well, you were on my show last time. I was on <laughs> your show last time. time. It's wonderful to hear about your show. Oh, well, I should tell everyone, your show is Making a Living with Maggie. It is a podcast. It's on every single week. You can download it from all the places that you can download our podcast. Exactly. iTunes yes. and SoundCloud and Stitcher. And, and you help people figure out how to get where they want to go. I've seen studies that say most people are unhappy with their careers or with their jobs. Does that surprise you? No. We have very low expectations when it comes to being happy in our careers as Americans. It's surprising. <laughs> when people think work should be pain, it should be a chore. Otherwise, I wouldn't get paid for it. I mean, the attitude we have about work is is something that I struggle to change on a regular basis. So it can be fun. In fact, I think it has to be fun. Like I used to say, oh, yes, work should be fun because then you'll be happier uh, and you'll be more successful. Now I'm starting to realize, Gene, look at the changes we're going through economically, you know, industries change overnight, right? And and careers are changing overnight. And the opportunities we have are so different that I, I see this as it's not a luxury. It's an essential to focus in on where your genius lies and how you're going to apply that and be of service with it. This is imperative for each person to manage their careers because everybody I, st- I talk to still wants security. 
even millennials, that's been the most surprising thing that I'm learning with my millennial clients, is they want security as much as the baby boomers. Well, I'm not surprised by that at all. I mean, look at where the millennials came from. They came out of college in 2008 when there was no job security, watching parents whose retirement portfolios crashed. They've been forced to live at home in record numbers. If I was a millennial, I would want security. Yeah, you're, okay. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> and they really do. Yet at the same time, I love that they want work-life balance. They're not willing to sacrifice who they are to, for just a paycheck. They really want meaning in their work. They want purpose to it. They want to get involved. You know, they want some kind of meaty role. And I love all those other aspects. So that all sounds amazing, right? For anybody, whether you're a millennial or an Xer or a boomer or a member of the greatest generation, all of those things that you just described, I want that. And I'm sure everybody who's listening wants that. So take me through a little bit of your process. How do we get from this point of maybe unhappiness or frustration or dissatisfaction to a happier place? And before you do it, I just want to tell everybody, Maggie doesn't believe that you have to earn less money in order to do these things. So we're going to talk about that too. Absolutely. And I'm sorry, again, you're, <laughs> I love it, Jean. You're just teeing me up to say exactly what I think people most need to hear, which is the answers are within each person. This is not something you have to go out and find. It's all right there in front of you. So when you say, how does somebody figure this out? It's by starting to pay attention differently to your career, to your talents, to your abilities, to your life experiences, because all of it is pointing you in a direction. And what I mean by that, gosh, how do I say it? So I love to help people start with soul search, right? That's the first step of the process is to say, okay, let's get to know you. And not just what you've done, because a lot of people when I ask them that question will say, well, here's my resume. I'm like, I don't really want your resume, nothing personal. <laughs> but if you're unhappy in your work, there's probably a bunch of stuff on there you'd really rather never do again. I'm like, let's talk about what you'd love to do. That's when I get the blank stare, right? Which says, um, well, I, I don't really know what I love to do. I only know what hasn't worked. And I say, okay, well, we can start with what hasn't worked and turn that around. You can always flip your list of what hasn't worked and say, okay, well, based on you know, the fact that I didn't have the most supportive boss, I recognize I need development, I need support, or I need a place that we have camaraderie. You know, so that's a, that's a good start. But then I say to people, okay, well, really, if you could wave a magic wand and have the most amazing thing happen, what would you love to see? And that's when I start to get some honesty. And people say, well, this might sound crazy, but, and they'll share ideas that they have. For um, example. For example, I mean, it's interesting. I've had all kinds of things from people saying, well, I really see myself as a producer of a video content or even a television show. And even though I've never done that before, I really, I can even see the concept and exactly what I do in the show and how it would help people. You know, and I've had other people say, well, actually, my biggest thing is, I want to pursue all my interests, not for the sake of money. I just want to grow and expand as a person. I just need a chunk of money in the bank, so I feel the freedom to do that. But to say, oh, I have to win the lottery before I can do this. Um, or I've had a, a, recently a person who contacted me who said, well, I'm kind of not motivated in my career, and I really you know, need some help getting motivated. And I said, well, what do you really want to do? And they said, well, I actually don't even like this career. I want to start my own business. 
I said, okay, well, why haven't you started your own business yet? Well, money, right? Like it, it all comes, it all down, comes back to money, it, which is why I know it's divine, <laughs> right? Coincidence that I'm here, right? Um, and, and I'll tell people, wait, so you need money. Money is out there, right? We know that money, uh, it, it's not something that you can't obtain, but you need a plan. You need a, to get specific about what your vision is. And that's the secret. You know, I tell people, you're not crazy. You're on to something, okay? So if you have a dream you've been harboring, whatever that happens to be, part of you might say, that's crazy. You could never make that happen. Try to give that inner critic a rest or or vacation or Mm -hmm. sabbatical. And then give yourself permission to write down what that dream looks like. And it's it's literally a visioning exercise, which I, you know, I know a lot of your listeners probably savvy, have probably heard of writing down your vision, but it increases your chances of making it happen. So you write down... I want to work for myself. I want I, my my. I'm like Gene. Sta- what's yours? Let's, <laughs> let's my, hear it. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm actually I'm I'm good right now. But my my stepson, um, interestingly, said I I really want a job where I don't have to dress up. This was when he came out of college. You know, I re- I don't want to have to put on. You know, I want to go in a t-shirt. And he's a computer guy. And it was very easy, actually, to find a job where he could go in a t-shirt. I mean, those kind of things go on your list, right? Even how it feels to be in the work. Like, people say, well, I don't know everything. And I'm like, really? I'm like, tell me about, like, in your mind's eye, if you could see yourself in a situation that you would enjoy, tell me about it. And they'll say things like, well, I see myself surrounded by coworkers who appreciate my value. We work together. You know, we have a common goal. There's no politics. Or they'll say things like, it's a relaxed environment. They'll even say, they'll describe it like, I see white, <laughs> you know, a setting. I have a comfortable desk. I have a great view. You know, they'll actually start to describe the physical setting. And what I tell people is don't write it like as if you will have it. Write it as if it's already happening. And I've done these exercises for myself too, especially during different career transitions. You know, you have to almost put a stake in the ground for what you'd like to see. And it could be even simple details like, I have clients who appreciate me, right? I have clients who value the work that I do. People rave about the work that I've done with them. Even if you're not sure what that work is, if you know you want clients who say and do that for you and you have that kind of relationship, write that down because the the details start to fill in themselves, but you've got to start painting the picture, right? You've got to start somewhere. And if you don't know where to start, two anecdotes that sort of popped into my head that, I God, I haven't thought of either of these things in a really long time. But I once interviewed Bobby Brown, um, the makeup, makeup artist. artist, Bobby Brown. And I said, how did you get started? And she said she got out of college and she didn't know what she wanted to do. And she came home and she was talking to her mother. And her mother, her mother didn't say to her, what do you want to do? Her mother said, what do you want to do tomorrow? And she said, I think I'm going to go to Marshall Fields. She was from Chicago. I think I'm going to go to Marshall Fields and play with the makeup. And that's what she did. She went to Marshall Fields and she played with the makeup. And look what happened. And the other story. She gave herself permission, too. How about that? Yeah, exactly. And her mother gave her permission, which was amazing. John Huey, who is the longtime editorial director at Time, Inc., said when he's trying to harness that what it is I want to do when he didn't know what it was he wanted to do, he thinks back to when he was 11 because 11 seems to be kind of a magical age where you believe everything is possible. And if you can remember what you wanted to do when you were 11, sometimes that helps unleash the dreams in the adult. Yeah, I would say even what you were experiencing 
in your life that kind of set up some of what you thought was think is possible. So for example, my mom went back to medical school when I was six years old. My brother was 10 and my sister was five. And she had to move two hours away from us to do that. Wow. Right. But my dad supported her. My, my grandmother started coming to help get us ready for school. Like the whole family rallied around this idea of her becoming a physician because it's really was her dream, what she wanted to do. And when I, you know, she was 28 at the time. For me as a kid, seeing that and seeing the support and then seeing her become her dream, and now she's still practicing as a physician, it's quite a few years later, it made me realize my life experience taught me that not only is anything possible, it's never too late to follow your dream. So when people ask me, why are you career coach? I used to say, oh, because I want to see people happy, which is true. But I realized it's because I realized at a young age and saw very clearly the young age that is absolutely never too late. Even if you have a family that you need to support, you know, even if you have to move away to do it, like it's all possible as long as you have the people who are willing to support you and you can put that plan in place. And to me, it was one of the greatest things she did for herself and our family and really gave me permission that there's not really a lot of pressure either. Because I think like you're saying, detours and all these things are happening for a valid reason. So even if you're in your 40s listening to this and saying, well, I still haven't figured out what it is. I'm like, that's okay, because you're having the life experiences you need to to show you what that path can really be. And yet we all have to make a living or most of us have to make a living. So how do you then, once you've done your soul searching, look at your vision and determine Okay, is this a career or is this a hobby? Sure. Well, I th- I don't see how. <laughs> For me, those two get blurred all the time. I really don't see how you cannot be who you are. Um, but you know what? The next step is research, and this is a step a lot of people skip, right? So we'll we'll I'll go through soul search with my clients, and the vision is one of many exercises, but it gives people an example of that kind of introspection, right? That helps you get a clearer picture. What a lot of people do is say, well, I've envisioned myself, you know, maybe as this TV producer. And they're like, okay, but I can't become a TV producer because, you know, my career is accounting. And I, how am I going to get from here to there? And it's so different. And I guess I should just give up. And I'm like, well, what about research? What about before you decide that's what you want? What if you make sure? What if we get you talking to a few TV producers if we can or taking some kind of summer camp program? They have those for adults now, too. <laughs> right? Let's get you trying on this new career in a way that's real enough, even if it means talking to someone doing the job, but in a way that's real enough that you can see, does this really match my vision? Because that's where people fall down a lot. They have a vision for something, but that the reality of that, what they think that job title is or that dream is, it's different. And it may not be the exact match. I mean, I'll be honest. I got my career coaching certification and I didn't know I wanted to be a career coach. You know, that was my soul search that led me to this idea. And I still was like, I don't know. Are you sure? Like, that sounds crazy. I'm a management consultant and career coaching is this. Who knows what that? Most people don't even know what that is at the time. I mean, this was like 15 years ago. And the best advice I got was from the person who helped me get the certification. She said, try it. That's what you need to do is just give your dream a chance and try it on in some way, shape or form. And that kind of research helps you determine, is this something I want to move forward with? Because if it's meant for you, it lights a spark that takes off. And there's no turning back. I've seen that in the in the right situation. So if you decide that it is the right thing to do and you want to be a career coach or you want to be a producer and you are an accountant and your skills don't match up, what next? You start to develop new skills. That's what you, right? You get on that path in whatever way you can. You know, if for, for me, what I did was I knew I couldn't support myself. I had a mortgage. I wasn't married. And, but I knew I wanted to give coaching a real try. And my initial research said, keep going, right? This sounds good. I do enjoy it. 
but I needed to to pay the bills, uh, right? So what I did was I took a job that required less of my time and actually was a 35% pay cut. But it gave me back my nights and weekends, which I didn't have in the job that I was making six figures, <laughs> right? And it also gave me financial incentive to want to make money with coaching. That was like this added bonus that was part of that experience. I was like, all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, I want to make up that money. And now I have an avenue to do it that I love, right? So it actually, again, was I the perfect coach? Did I charge high rates? No, when you're just starting out, you got to start somewhere. And I even told people, hey, you know, my rates are half off right now because I'm just starting out. Mm -hmm. I just wanted the chance to do it. You know, the more coaching I did, the more confident I got. And then I felt like I could, you know, charge more. But for four years, Gene, I kept the day job while I developed my practice on the side. So it's a bunny rule. Don't quit your day job. I love that rule. I, I absolutely do because it gave me, again, permission to take on the right clients. It gave me money to invest in a website. You know, like there are things you need to start a business and money's one of them. And if, you know, to have another avenue to create that cash flow and not have to pressure my dream into doing it. And I think that's what the hobby issue comes up because you say, well, now all of a sudden I hate my hobby. And I'm like, but if you make your hobby, you're living too soon when it's not, I, I wasn't enough of a seasoned coach to make a living from it. And if I had made it that way, I probably would have hated coaching. <laughs> and I think sometimes people think if I take a pay cut, I'm going to be so angry. Angry is the wrong word. So resentful. Resentful. That's the right word. That's the one I was looking for. And yet I have to say I've done it. I've taken a pay cut. I've, I've done it twice in my life and neither time, a big one, like half, and neither time did I resent it because I was able to continue to support myself and also because it didn't matter. I was happier during the day. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like it's like a reset button of sorts. Like it's a temporary thing. It's absolutely temporary. Because it should be, because you get paid more when you're working in your genius, right? When you're so. So what searching. does that mean? I've heard you say that. I've heard you say that before. And wait, before you tell us all about our genius, let me just remind everybody that her money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments, and Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives. And that means doing things like taking charge of our work lives and our careers. We all deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Maggie Mistel. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. Again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. And we are still with Maggie Mistel, who helps people focus in on their genius. I love that introduction. What is, what is <laughs> that's it, it, Gene. You just nailed it. So what does it mean? <laughs> so there's this concept of core genius that I did not develop. It's actually Jack Canfields, who I love. He's a success coach. And but I but I'd latched on to it because the minute I saw it, I said, this is what I help people uncover. And what I mean by that is we're each unique, right? But a lot of times, if we're really good at something and we have a real talent for it, we think it's easy for everybody, right? So the idea with genius is to recognize that because something comes so naturally and so easy to you, it's actually your genius, not something easy, and you want to embrace it, own it, love it. Also, it's not just your talents. It's your natural preferences. It's your life experiences tie into this. It's that whole package, even your presence or essence, like what you just exude by not even speaking, right, but just walking into a room. It's not changing who you are, but appreciating and accepting who you are and really recognizing that everything you have is a gift. Everything about you, whether it's 
uh, you know, the physical look that you have, whatever that is, right? It's like you left to your own devices are perfect. I tell my clients that all the time. I'm like, we're under the assumption here that you're perfect as you are. And when we understand your perfection in, in your talents and in your skills and what you love to do and how you want to make a difference and all these things that you'd love to see happen in your career, but you maybe aren't sure how, but if you just appreciate them for what they are, it points to a genius. And you say that when you find your genius, the money comes. Yes, <laughs> it does. But the way we're being of service now, everybody, is through their genius. It, but it may not be what you're getting paid to do. Your job may not be aligned with your genius. I was an accounting major. There we go. That's where you got your accounting thing. I maybe want to be a TV producer someday. We'll see. But when I think about my genius, it wasn't aligned very well with being a CPA. I don't like details. Not really great with numbers. And I, when I don't do my own taxes, I get three different answers. Like, Really? not aligned with my talents. <laughs> um, but now what I do as a career coach, I'm like, it's come so naturally. People all, like are often like, Maggie, they write thank you notes on their checks to me. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I'm trying to tell. Like, I used to struggle to make uh, an income as an accountant. I mean, it took me so much effort. It was like pushing a boulder up a hill to just make, to get that job done that mm -hmm. I felt exhausted at the end of the day. And I spent my paycheck on all kinds of clothes and hair and whatever I could just to feel better because I was so unhappy. With my day job. Now, as a career coach, I get paid more per hour for absolute sure. I get to do things that I find are fun. Like, it's almost like I just came today from a, I was doing a media event. I love being in media and talking about it. <laughs> I mean, you can't, I almost pinch myself. Like, this has to be a dream. This is too much fun. That's my point. Like, when you're excited, like, think about who you would prefer to work with somebody who's excited and wants to be there and is engrossed in what they're doing and can't get enough of it and is ecstatic, right? It's attractive. It's an attractive quality when you have this passion versus the person who we've all dealt with who's really pretty miserable in their job and doesn't really want to be there. Oh, that's, very, that's the opposite, right? Right. <laughs> right. Nobody wants that. to be there. Right. How long, because I, I don't want to leave people with unrealistic expectations. How long does it take? Like if you decide, okay, I know I'm not good where I am now. I know I'm not fulfilled. I know I'm not happy where I am now. I want to be someplace else. I'm going to go through this soul searching, researching, job searching process. What's the realistic expectation? I think, I mean, to actually do the soul search itself, you can get that part of the process done in about 10 weeks. Because I love to work with people like every two weeks, you know, so literally, you know, about a month and a half, you could get really clear on what you want. The research is where I see things stretching out. Because that's, again, where you want to make sure you're on the right path. You might want to talk to a lot of people. There might be three different careers you're looking at. And you could take six months to a year just if you wanted to, to research. Right. So that's why oftentimes people contact me and say, should I quit my job? I'm like, no, keep your job because we want you having an income coming in. But we want to give you some flexibility to explore these other things. You know, but once you do the soul search and research like that, the job search becomes much easier. And I'll just give my own example. I decided I wanted to become a coach or at least give it a chance. What I did, it was say, OK, I know I need to change careers. I just all I did was ask my network. All I do is said to the folks in my network, I need a job where I'm not on as much as I was as a management consultant. I needed something in the industry. I said, HR is probably a good area. Does anybody know anyone in HR? Turns out the head of HR was a former Arthur Anderson person who had worked with a guy who I had worked with her husband. I never knew her. But anyway, I ended up going on an informational interview just to talk to her about HR. And she hired me on the spot. Because she said, oh, we need management training. Can you do that here? And I said, sure, let's get started, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> my point is that what I find, I thought it was me. I thought, oh, maybe I'm just having this great experience, you know, it's just, but I find over and over again that when we get this kind of clarity and we just start asking for what we really want, 
it's in our network. It's not even far away from us. It's right. It's like, it, but we just never thought to ask, right? So once you start letting people in on not only what your vision is, but what you'd love to see happen, you'd be amazed at how quickly that can turn into a career. And honestly, you and I are talking today because of that Martha Stewart job, because of Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart launched a radio station, right? As, mm-hmm. as you know, on Sirius XM at the time. And I had harbored, Gene, a secret dream that I thought was crazy, that I wanted to be a radio host. I never told anybody. Meanwhile, I end up at Martha Stewart by happenstance because of this connection. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm a career coach on her channel, you know, at, with my own show. I mean, and that happened in the span of one year, what, about two years, sorry, about two years. So, you know, it doesn't have to take a long time, but you have to get on the path. Right. And and I just don't want people to think it's going to happen necessarily overnight. It can, though. And it can. But you have to give yourself permission. And again, people aren't doing that. We start, You started this whole interview saying low job satisfaction. And I'm like, yeah, it's low expectation of any satisfaction. Right. So if people aren't expecting right. great things to happen, they're not going to ask their network. They're not even going to go through the iterations of trying to find it. And when I try to always tell people, you've got to expect that the right people are going to show up because they are. And the coolest part is just last night, I was reconnecting with the client who I've worked with for probably seven or eight years. And, you know, she wrote her vision seven or eight years ago. And now it didn't take her seven or eight years, but well, maybe it did in some ways. Her vision is completely accomplished. Just like you said, I'm good. <laughs> right? I'm good. Check, check, and check. And she is ready to write the next level. And she literally has started her own business and done a lot of things. And did it take some time? Yeah, but I'll tell you, she would be the first one to say that all those steps were necessary, right? In a positive way to get her where she is today. So I guess you're right. I guess it doesn't always happen overnight. But usually, if it doesn't, there's good reasons for those steps that you're taking. Maggie Mistel, where can we find you? MaggieMistel.com is probably the easiest place. It's M-A-G-G-I-E-M-I-S-T-A-L.com. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Kelly's joined me in the studio. We're going to take some of your questions. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Jean. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Good. I'm good. My stomach is talking. It talks a lot. It, no, it's you know, a talker. It is a talker. It's a talker. It's only a talker here. It does not talk at home. Huh. And this is too much information for our audience. Probably not, though. I mean, it's setting the scene, giving them some nice sounds. I just had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, so my stomach is talking. Yep. There we go. <laughs> All right. Here we go. What do we have? Our first question. Our first question is from Diane Morris. She tweeted us. She started a new job. And she's wondering, is there any benefit in not rolling an existing 403B into a new 403B, but instead putting it into an IRA? Choice might be the benefit of doing it. You've got three choices, basically. So when you leave a retirement plan behind, if you've got more than $5,000 in that plan, you can leave it there. You can move it to your new plan or you can roll it into an IRA. What you don't want to do is take the money in the form of a check and spend it because then you'll have to pay taxes on it. It's a taxable event. It gets very expensive and then you don't have that money for retirement. I think the question should be what are the investment choices and what do the investment fees look like in her old plan, her new plan, and how does that compare to what it would cost her to put the money into an IRA and what sort of choices would she have there? As long as the menu 
is good in her new plan. I tend to opt for administrative ease. I like being able to sign on on one screen and see all of my different accounts. And so even if she decides to move the money into an IRA, she might want to do it with the same firm that has the new 401k so that she'll be able to see it all in one place. So for 403Bs, it's the same taxable repercussions yep. as 401k. Yep. Okay. I did not know that. And 403Bs are more commonly used with what types of teachers, positions? Teachers, for example. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Our next question is from Erica. She wrote to us on Facebook. She says, hello, Jean. I listen and love your podcast, and I see that many people send in questions, so I thought, who better to ask than an expert like you? Aww. Had to include that because I love it. Thank you. My soon-to-be husband and I are thinking of purchasing a new home, but I am concerned that my student loan debt and past bankruptcy will hurt us. The bankruptcy was about four years ago. Can we really buy a home, or is my financial situation going to keep us from it? Thank you for all that you teach us. With love and admiration, Erica. Ah, well, congratulations, first of all, Mm -hmm. on getting married and on thinking about buying a home. So Erica probably knows that this information will stay on her credit report for longer than four years. But what many people don't understand is that the information on credit reports fades into the background before it falls off, long before it falls off in many cases. And after two years, a lot of people find that they start receiving applications again for credit cards or offers in the mail to refinance their home equity loan, those sorts of things. So I would say, number one, check your credit report and check your credit score. If you're not in the habit of doing that already, you can check your credit score at lots of different places these days. And as long as you're up in the mid sixes to low sevens, I would say go ahead and give it a shot. Of course, you want to be in the mid-sevens. That's optimal. But even if you're not there, you could borrow money, you could buy a home, and then you could refi a couple of years down the road. Mortgage rates will probably be a little higher, but we're not expecting them to move too far or too fast. And so if your credit score continues to improve, refinancing is a way to lower your interest rate. I'm a How I Met Your Mother fan, and this reminds me of the scene where Lily and Marshall are applying for a mortgage, but Lily has not disclosed her history, and they find out their rate for their mortgage, which is the highest possible one it could be. So, Erica, at least you disclosed this with your with your partner, yes. so you're already better than Lily. You get kudos for that. Yep. I like the How I Met Your Mother where Lily dumps her box of credit yes. cards yes. out on the couch. That was a favorite with me as well. Also a fun one. Well, thank you, Jean. Sure. And just in case people are wondering, you can send us your questions on Twitter, on Facebook, via email at jeanchatsky.com. And we're going to turn a corner now with this week's Thrive segment. So let's address an old wives' tale, a reason that you may have often heard for the fact that women are underrepresented in corporate America is that women tend to prioritize motherhood over climbing the corporate ladders. In fact, that's not true. Harvard Business School says otherwise. They did a study in 2014. The first wave of this study came out, and it essentially says women in business want high-achieving careers even after 
they start families. Generally speaking, the study found men expect to be the primary breadwinners. They also expect their spouses will handle more of the child rearing. And in both cases, expectations are exceeded. But women expect their careers will be just as important as their spouses and that childcare will be an equally split responsibility between both partners and neither expectation pans out. So the question becomes, how do we women line our expectations up with realities? Even with workplace norms, men's expectations and perhaps public policy getting in the way. That's what we're going to talk about today with my guest, Cheryl Cassoni. She is anchor for Fox Business Network and author of The Comeback, How Today's Moms Re-Enter the Workplace Successfully. I can't tell you how many of my friends are going to want to tune into this segment because this is just such a universal problem. Cheryl, welcome. It is so great to to finally get to meet you. I've been Uh, such a fan for so many years. Well, that is so nice of you to say, and it's terrific to meet you, too. I'm surprised you were at MSNBC for a while. I was there at the same time. We didn't even cross paths. I know. I know that the days the good old days, right? Exactly. So, but here we are, you know. So I'm curious, you are not a mom yourself, but you've been in the workplace a long time. What inspired you to want to tackle this subject? It was a couple of things. I think the first part of it was that I saw a good story. You know, at the end of the day, I'm not a mom, but I'm a journalist. Mm -hmm. And I saw that women were being not represented correctly, I felt like, in corporate America when it came to going and getting jobs, especially moms. And I came from a working mom. My mom was the original comeback mom. And, you know, I think that there was these myths out there about that children would suffer if mom was going to work. I was a latchkey kid. I always felt loved. I always felt supported. And my mother was an example to me of what an incredible working mom could be. And I discovered that there was a story out there that after the recession, these moms were trying to get back into the workforce and they were really struggling. Everybody was struggling to get jobs after the recession. And that's when I started doing uh, my segments at work because at, at Fox, because I found that there was this need for people. They needed help. They needed someone on their side to help them go through the morass of job hunting. But in particular, moms were not being included in that conversation. Well, you said everyone was struggling. And after 2008, everyone was struggling. I mean, white men were struggling. People with jobs in industries that didn't come back were struggling. What was it about the moms that you found their struggle so compelling? I think one of the main stories that I thought was so fascinating was the mom that said to me that when she left the workforce, it was on her own accord. Um, she was a corporate lawyer here in New York City, and she wanted to be home and spend a few years with her kids. She was at a financial firm here in New York. When she decided to go back after 2008, this was 2010, she was shocked that not only could she not get interviews, but she couldn't get a job. She had to take a lower paying position when she finally came back into the workforce. Here's a woman who was Harvard educated. You were talking about that Harvard study. Mm-hmm. A Harvard educated attorney couldn't get a job. Can you imagine what the rest of these women out there across the country were dealing with if a Harvard educated attorney in New York and financial services can't get work? And so I started to do all the interviews. I interviewed over a hundred women, moms that had done it. I wanted to find women that were successful because that's the story to me is I can tell you what the problem is as a journalist, but it's always tough to find the solution. And these women found the solutions and they were so inspirational to me. So as you 
listen to their stories to craft a solution to present to other people. Let's talk about the things that these successful people did that other people could emulate. Well, one of the things, one of the, the struggles, I think, in particular, that the, all the women said to me that they had was insecurity. That was the immediate problem that they faced. They all felt insecure, and they all felt like, well, what can I offer to a company? Truth is, after they went through the process and got back into the workforce, they realized, hey, this company isn't doing me a favor by hiring me. I'm doing them a favor because I have all of these skills, skills that I really developed at home. You think that, and I think this is where the, the myth kind of comes about, that a, a woman goes home and she's staying home with the kids and she just lost her brain. You know, that, that's not the case. Right. You know, nobody goes brain dead because they have children and stay home. But these women, I found when they came back into the workforce, realized they were actually better employees. They were better parts of the team because they had learned things at home like patience. I mean, if you can negotiate with a six-year-old, you can negotiate with a 25-year-old in your office, right? I learned time management. I mean, I remember coming back to work after I had my first child, and I was, even in my own mind, so much more efficient because my priorities had shifted and it was important to get home. And so I was going to get the work done in a faster, more efficient manner. You were a multitasker. Yes. And that is what these women told me. They found that they were more patient. They were multitaskers. They were organized because it's exactly what you just put into words. They wanted to go to work, do their job, and then get home to their kids. Okay. So how do you take that and put it on a resume that's going to get you a corporate job? Well, first off, it's a little bit about rearranging the resume. You're not covering up the fact that there's a gap on your resume. The gap is there. And that's the most common question I've been getting since I, the book was published. But you've got to put your skills up at the top. You earned those skills. You have those skills. Now, you may have had them five years ago, 10 years ago, but they didn't just disappear. So what you put after your information, obviously your name and your contact information, is you put the skills there after your objective because you want to show what you're going to offer right now. And I do believe, unless you've got an incredible education to show, I think that you do need to put the time frame of the last job that you worked maybe a little bit lower. Because so this you, it's is about a, telling yourself. This is something, I mean, there's a word for this. This is called a skills-based resume, right? Right. I, and if you Google that, you'll see examples of skills-based resumes. My husband is a, a recruiter, and so we've talked a lot about different resume design and whether experience still goes to the top and whether you still even need an objective. But but this idea of a skills-based resume, I think it's a thing. It's a very real thing. The other problem that, and I've been doing, again, I've been doing these segments for about four years at Fox, is that a lot of times there's now programs that companies use to filter through resumes online, and they use keywords. And mm -hmm. I write about it in the book because you want to put keywords from the job description on the resume, and you've got to be nimble with your resume. You've got to change it up every time that you send it to a new position because if those those keywords don't pop up on the resume from the job description, you're filtered out, and a human being never looks at your resume. It, you know, it's so remarkable that you are saying that right now because on the drive-in this morning, I was talking on the phone don't yell at me for talking on the phone. I was on Bluetooth um, with my cousin whose son is a college grad and is looking for a job. And he's applying for jobs as a legal assistant. And he was recommended by a human being for this particular job. But then his resume had to go through the same computer as everybody else's resume. And his resume didn't pass. And that's why when you look at the actual blurbs of jobs that you're applying for, I mean, you should be lifting 
words and phrases, right? And just plunking them into your resume. Does it help to plunk them into your cover letter as well, or does it have to go in the resume? I think that it, it should go in the cover letter, but in particular, the resume, because at the end of the day, that's what they're screening, first and foremost, is that resume. Now, I think that the, the cover letter isn't really a cover letter. It's become the email. <laughs> we all have ADD now, you mm-hmm. know, in corporations, in our work lives, in our personal lives. We have such short attention spans, and I think that the hard thing for job seekers these days is you have to deal with that, and you have to cut through the clutter. But, you know, and I think a lot of the women that I've been talking to a lot that I interviewed a lot, you know, technology moved so fast when they were at home. I mean, if I walked away and didn't work for the next month, technology would pass me by. I'm very open about that because it just changes so quickly. But these women in particular had to really rethink how they were trying to get into um, a company or, you know, companies if they're applying for several positions, it certainly helps them to know somebody. I mean, that's still, that's one lesson that has not changed in, in job hunting over decades. If you know someone, certainly that's the way, a personal connection. I want to come back to the confidence gap, though, for a second. I mean, when you've been home, even for a couple of years, you do feel like, well, maybe I'm not worth what I was worth when I left. How do you get past that? Well, the sad truth is that a lot of times these women that I interviewed, the moms I interviewed, I would say more than half had to take a pay cut and they had to take a position cut and they had to reenter the workforce working with people that were sometimes 10, 15 years their junior. And they had to not only deal with that kind of workplace angst, if you will, and that difficulty knowing that you're taking a lesser position and lesser pay. But the truth is, is that you are going to likely have to. That's the sad lesson. So so is the lesson then just know that you're going to have to do it and build back up from there? Probably. Yeah, that's the, that's the truth. I mean, that's, you know, I could, I could sit here and say, no, it's, I could be this positive Pollyanna type of, you know, writer and say, oh, it's going to be fine. But the truth is, is that's not really what's happening out there right now. And, and the, you know, the economy, as you know, and as I know, because we report on it every day, is still rather rough. And it's, there's still a struggle. Wages have not risen mm-hmm. um, within the recovery, like, all of us certainly had hoped they would. And that's another reality that women that are at home now trying to come back in are gonna are gonna have to face. Plus again, the you know, likely a lower position. It's you know, if you've got a gap on your resume, if you do leave the workforce, whether it was voluntary or not, for for my purposes, my research it was voluntary. They wanted to stay home with their kids. You're gonna have that gap and that's gonna be something that's gonna be addressed, I would say. And, are, and are, are, there any, are there any things that you can do while you are with your kids that can help fill the gap in a way that you keep enough of a hand in there so that you aren't really as far behind? Technology can help you because social media keeps you connected. One of the women that I interviewed, a former television producer, I should say, um, when she wanted to go home and, and have kids and stay home for fear, she knew she was going to go back. She was able to keep in touch with former colleagues through social media. When she figured out what she wanted to do, which was to start a public relations business, she used her connections and her contacts on social media to start getting clients. And it worked. It was a seamless transition back into the workforce and starting her own business, which she did at home, which many moms want to do. And it worked for her. Social media, it's amazing. Is that the solution for a lot of moms to actually start your own business? I mean, is it easier if you take it on yourself rather than going out and pitching yourself for a job? Not that starting a business is easy. 
as you know, it's very difficult. And there's and I talk about it in the book about the the basic steps to get your yourself going, especially if you want a partner. One of the stories I loved from uh, from the book, a woman I interviewed out of Boston, she and two other moms, they were all psychologists by trade. They were friends. Their kids were about the same age. They all started working out of their home, but they ended up creating a consulting business. That consulting business, using their psychology work, believe it or not, was a way for them to form together to start to get clients. Through the years, they found that they were each other's ideal partners because if somebody needed childcare, the other mom was there to step in. And they, they understood what each was going through with struggles at home, struggles at work, trying to make it all work together, keep the kids happy, even if they're screaming. Um, they were able to find that that partnership. So partnerships, I think, are great if you can make it work in, in businesses. Yes, a lot of the women wanted to stay at home. Not all of them, but they wanted to stay at home and work from home because it was easier for them. But I would say that's only about half of the women I interviewed. The other half went back into corporate America and to jobs. You're not going to be surprised to this. A lot of the women didn't think they were going to have to go back. And life happens. Divorce happens. Um, one woman, her, her husband passed away. One woman, her husband lost his job during the recession. And, then and after two years, up. they needed health insurance. They needed the income. And so a lot of the women you know, didn't plan to go back and had to go back. So yes, working from home is great. It is tough. I talk about creating a home office in your home, which is, I know, a struggle, and I know it's not perfect. I think that you do your best. But I did learn a lot of lessons from the women that, that made that work at home. So if you are going to go back into a company, into a corporate setting, and you're negotiating, and you know you're negotiating against yourself in many ways because of what you said earlier, that many women find that they do have to take a step back in terms of salary, and nobody wants to do that. So how do you negotiate the best deal you can? Well, I think it's a core belief that you have to remind yourself when you're going in is that you're not just going in on your own. You've got a family. And you better love what you're going to do if you're going to leave your children at home for that. I, I do believe that at my core. I believe that for anyone that works for a living. I, I would hope that you at least like it a lot if you're going to be going to it every day. Mm -hmm. I think you and I both love what we do, and I hope that everyone could have that experience that we do. Um, but at the same time, when you're going in for those negotiations, you have to remember that when they say, do you have any questions? Yes, you have questions. Ask about the culture. If the person doing the interview says, well, we work really hard, we work weekends, we're always connected, Take a step back and think to yourself, is that the type of company culture that I want to be a part of? Is that going to work for my family? Because it's not just you going back to work. It's your family that's going to be going back to work with you as well. All of that is going to have to be adjusted. The other thing is confidence when you go into the interview. And that's for anyone that has to do a job interview. It's the worst experience. I mean, it's it's doing your taxes. And, you know, there's there's things in life that just kind of stink. And a job interview is one of them. They're tough and you're nervous. But I always tell people to make sure that you ask questions, eye contact, posture, you know, don't fidget, make sure your phone is off, you know, those basics of when you walk in a room to present yourself. And a lot of the women as well told me that they had to go out and buy new clothes. They had to buy a new interview suit. They had to buy two interview suits because what if it happens if the interviews are, are right together? You know, the basics of that process. And there's a chapter in the book on that. What about the uh, the money itself? I mean, how do you get the most money that you can? 
Again, it's remembering, well, first you can research and find out what that particular job will pay. Thank God for the internet, right? Um, you know, do some online research. You know, I really like Career Builder. That's one of my favorite sites to go and to kind of see what similar jobs might be paying. In particular, they do break it down state by state. Um, AOL Jobs is another one of my fun little resources that I use when I'm doing my job segments. But you, you really need to make sure that the money is going to work because if you are going to have to pay for child care, that's an issue. What is your commute? the cost of the car, the insurance. I mean, all of the things that are going to factor into the cost of you going back to work, you have to take that out of what the salary is going to be. Then you have to take out taxes that you're going to be paying out of said salary and then look at that core number and decide. And that, I think, will help guide you in what you ask for in that position and reminding yourself over and over that your time is worth it and that you will be, if they're offering you the job, they want you. Right. That's you. never, 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 never put the number out there first. They put the number out there first. I can't tell you how many people Sometimes in general make the mistake. it is so mistake. hard. It is so hard. And I have made the mistake because they say, what do you want? What do you say when they say, what are you looking for? I would like to be fairly compensated for the position. Okay, but what are you looking for? <laughs> I mean, it, it's just, it is sometimes I think, I agree with you, it is best if you can get yourself to not put the number out there first. But you know, I've just, I listen to my husband and he is, he's really good at not putting the number out there first either. It's tough to do. I know. It's like, well, I, I just want to be fairly compensated for the job and the task at hand. I mean, there's, you've got to find ways to dodge it. You know, whatever the phrase is that's going to work for you, you've got to dodge that question because they're going to try. You know, I can't tell you how many people, I interviewed a lot of uh, HR professionals off the record um, from some of the largest corporations in the country for the book to kind of find out what the secret was. You know, A, they said a lot of the women when it came to moms that were coming back in, they said a lot of times they could instantly tell that the woman was a mother with kids just because it was just coming up in conversation. So remember when you go in, you're selling yourself. You know, you're talking about yourself and who you are. You're your best proponent in that moment. Not that you're going to hide the fact that you have kids, but... Uh, Don't talk they, about your family. They, they, Yeah, they said that a lot of times the women would just, or, or even men, they would just kind of start, things would just start coming up because, it's, you know, they really, it's improper for them to ask you. Right. Personal but, questions, but, you know. I mean, I guess it's from the perspective of they really want to hear what you can do for them. They don't really want to hear so much about you. Correct. And I think that that's true in most corporations. You really are there. You're being paid to do a job. And I think my advice, and this is how I was raised, I'm sure you are as well, you go in, you keep your nose down, you do your work, and you leave, and you really do the best that you can do. You're compensated for that, and then you go home. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's work ethic. Um, but I think, you know, especially for a lot of people when they're out of the workforce, and I've had, I, I get a lot of emails from people that were, um, laid off in their 40s and early 50s during the recession that are having trouble getting back in as well. So this is to everyone out there that's in that mm -hmm. place in their life, which is a really sad and difficult place to be, is that you have to remember that you are capable and able and you need to be fairly compensated. Because once you go back in and you agree to that salary, that's it until you negotiate for a raise in six months or a year. And the more research you can do, obviously, uh, the better. But again, you have to have a, a really clear picture in your mind of what amount of money is going to make it worth it to go back, if it's a choice that you're making to go back to work. Cheryl Cassoni, the book is The Comeback. Um, thank you so much. This was really fact-filled and informational and fun, so I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for all you do, by the way. Thanks. 
Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. I want to thank Maggie Mistel and Cheryl Cassoni for terrific conversations. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes and leave us a review. We want to know what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join me next week when we'll be talking with Shark Tank host Barbara Corcoran. I couldn't be more excited. Tune in. We'll talk soon.